Hi, I'm Bryn Boyce, and this is The Shakesdown, a podcast where I explore meaning and hidden clues within Shakespeare's text in a fun and accessible way. The Shakesdown is for Shakespeare lovers and haters, students, teachers, aficionados, or really anyone who likes a little language puzzle from time to time. So let's get started. This month's episode explores Helena's end of Act One, Scene One soliloquy, which you can find at line 226 through 251 in A Midsummer Night's Dream. As I mentioned on the last episode, this podcast is most satisfying when you have the text in front of you, and it's even better if you have a pencil to mark that bit of text up. I should also mention that you'll probably hear me shuffling papers and grabbing books off of my bookshelf just uh, because I'm doing the work live as we record. So forgive the shuffles, I pray you. Um, so Midsummer is presumed to have been written around 1595, 1596, around the same time as Romeo and Juliet. And he's really coming into his own, coming into the height of his writing powers, but especially his comedy writing powers. I particularly love to teach this monologue as um, an introduction to iambic pentameter because it's so steady and regular. And then it has a few really great character helping or um, I guess actor helping really surprises in it. It really shows you how verse can help create a character. So today we're gonna work on this piece, Helena, and then talk about what it tells us about who Helena is. Okay, so let's give it a read. How happy some or other some can be. Through Athens, I am thought as fair as she, but what of that? Demetrius thinks not so. He will not know what all but he do know. And as he errs, doting on Hermia's eyes, so I, admiring of his qualities. Things base and vile holding no quantity, love can transpose to form and dignity. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Nor hath love's mind of any judgment taste, wings and no eyes figure unheedy haste. And therefore is love said to be a child, because in choice he is so oft beguiled. As waggish boys and game themselves forswear, so the boy love is perjured everywhere. For ere Demetrius looked on Hermia's eye, he hailed down odes that he was only mine. And when this hail some heat from Hermia felt, so he dissolved, and showers of odes did melt. I will go tell him of fair Hermia's flight. Then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. And for this intelligence, if I have thanks, it is a dear expense. But herein mean I to enrich my pain, to have his sight thither and back again. Okay, so let's do just a fairly basic reading of that. And let's just paraphrase through so that we know what we're talking about first before we take a look at that meter. Uh, so how happy some or other some can be. How happy some people are compared to others. Uh, throughout Athens, where we live, that's where the setting of the play, people think I'm as beautiful as Hermia. But what does that even matter? Demetrius doesn't think so. He does not agree. Uh, this next line I think is very fun. Um, he will not know what all but he do know. First of all, just note the very staccato one syllable nature of that particular line. Um, but the meaning is, is kind of confusing. He will not know what all but he do know. He refuses to, he won't know what everyone, that's the all, he won't know what everyone but he seems to know. It's as if the only opinion that he will listen to is his own stupid one. 
Um, and as he mistakes, so if we look at the word errors, as he errs, um, you'll notice that that's sort of the, the where errors comes from, errors, um, meaning to mistake, but it has a lot of other really fun um, sort of sub meanings. And so these sub meanings um, in Shakespeare, I love to look up if you if you have a Shakespeare's lexicon, um, lexicon is um, I'm just going to pick up my book here and read off the front um, is by Alexander Schmidt or he helped compile it. Shakespeare lexicon and quotation dictionary. Every word defined and located more than 50,000 quotations identified. And uh, it's two volumes of books. It's really it's Shakespeare nerds love this thing because um, Schmidt and his team have gone through every single word of Shakespeare and put it in this dictionary. And so if you're having a, a, a question about what airs means in Midsummer Night's Dream in act one, scene one, line 230 or whatever, wherever it is, you can actually look up that instance of airs and find out which one, what definition he actually meant. Um, and so this is what scholars have, have de deemed that means. So it's a, it's a fun, fun book for us uh, Shakespeare nerds. So errors in this case means not only mistakes, like we think it means, and like to err is human, to forgive divine. Um, it means to deviate from your course or wander or stray. So think about the, the choice of that word as, as he strays doting on Hermia's eyes. So there, that implies a, a relationship. Um, he used, you know, he, he used to like me, but as he strays and now loves, uh, he dotes on Hermia's eyes. Uh, and I want you to think about the word doting. Doting has sort of come to mean now, like, you know, really liking, just really liking someone, but it actually has kind of a fun negative connotation. It means to be extremely and uncritically fond of. So the, the use of that fun, <laughs> fun word doting instead of liking or fawning, there is a, there is a little bit of a negative connotation in there that is, that is funny. Just re reminding everybody that this uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, she's very sad but it's a comedy. So, so some of these word choices can be very helpful in creating your character, doting. Ugh. So as he strays, um, extremely uncritically fond of Hermia's eyes, likewise, I admire his, and then this funny word, instead of saying, I like his eyes, or I like his legs or his butt or his you know his mind whatever she uses the word qualities and again qualities here is is um it means like his virtues his so we can actually make a joke of that as well she can't she can't say all the things she likes about him she likes so many things about him that she's just going to encompass this in this nice virtuous word qualities but it gives the actor something to really play with um because qualities is like I like I really like that guy's qualities is just a kind of a funny thing to say uh, moving down into this section love um, can transform so love can transform crude uh, gross horrible things that have no worth into beautiful and dignified things think about that 
that sentence, love can make gross things awesome, right? I think that's so sweet. Love, it's because love doesn't look with the eyes, uh, but with the mind. Like we, we are imagining makes things even better than they are. I love that guy. I, and he, he loves Hermia because he's imagining she's, he's, she's perfect in something that she's not. And then she has this realization. That's why they paint winged Cupid blind. So in, in most um, art from the era and before, if there is a, a, a relief sculpture or a painting of Cupid, he almost always has uh, a blindfold over his eyes. That's why we say love is blind because Cupid is always painted as this little baby with a blindfold on with an arrow that he is shooting willy-nilly at people and that's why so many odd people fall in love with each other and say how how did that work out right and so she has this discovery that's why they paint winged cupid paint winged cupid is painted blind right and then she extends this and says and and love love doesn't have good judgment doesn't have good taste imagine wings and blindness must make for you know major mistakes <laughs> like undue speed um uh, one scholar says makes for undue speed in falling in love and then she further helena further moves through this uh, metaphor thus love oh yeah love is thought of as a childish baby because he always makes the wrong choice he's just like blindly shooting his arrow uh, he makes the wrong choice with uh, he's with his arrow that he's no good at shooting because he's blindfolded, just like the, mis the mischievous boys who who lie and go back on their word as they're playing like their little um, cops and robbers games. You know they're they're out um, when they're playing they lie and they go back on their word. So too does the boy love does Cupid just lie himself silly, it's a little boy, because and she starts to relate this back to herself again. Before Demetrius saw Hermia's eyes, he swore that he belonged to me, that he was my boyfriend. Uh, and then when he felt attracted to Hermia, these uh, he dissolved. These, um, these love odes actually melted down like hail does in heat. Okay, so we understand that that little that little metaphor. It's like it's he melted. Like all the love that he had for me melted when he saw her, when he felt when he felt a little heat from Hermia. And then we get an idea here. You know what? I will go and tell him that Hermia is running away. In the play, uh, just, just for, for context, in case you haven't read the play, right before this monologue, uh, Hermia and Lysander have, um, have been told by Aegeus, Hermia's father, that you know, over his dead body, are you going to marry Lysander? You are going to marry Demetrius and I am your dad and I own you. And this is the way it's going to be. Um, and so Lysander and Hermia vow to steal away together into the forest and then go find uh, Lysander's dowager aunt and live with her in another land so that they can be together. Um, so she says, you know what? I, 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 Helena is like, oh my gosh, I'm going to tell him that Hermia is running away. And then he'll go to the forest tomorrow night to pursue her. And then he's first going to thank me for this bit of info. And all of my struggles will be worth it because 
okay, yes. And so she says that this funny little line, um, if I have thanks, it is a dear expense, but herein mean I to enrich my pain. Think about that. So he's going to thank me for this information. The struggle it will be okay because I plan to make my pain worse for now, but then he's eventually going to turn his sight back from her to me again because of this plan that I have um, to go tell him. And then she's going to follow him in the woods uh, and, and then mayhem and hilarity ensue. That's what happens um, for a little more context about what happens afterwards. So she is working this thing out. I want to talk briefly about the difference between a soliloquy and a monologue right now. So a soliloquy is when the character is on stage alone talking to the audience. Now, this is a this is, a, I suppose, a preference, um, but I, I don't want to call it a rule, but to me, it's a rule when I'm directing that when a character is on stage, they're always talking to the audience. They're not talking to the inside of their own mind. They're not alone. They're using the audience as a, like a co-conspirator, a confidant. So as she's, she may be alone, but she is definitely talking to someone and that someone is an audience who is supportive. Um, so a monologue, uh, conversely, is when you're saying a, a, you know, they can a lines that are this long, but you're saying it to someone who is on stage. Um, so this soliloquy, she's confiding in the audience. She's working out, uh, confiding in them uh, about this relationship problem and how happy Hermia and Lysander are, and why can't I be happy like that? I used to feel like. I was gonna be happy like that and I'm, I'm not now. So she's working that out, confiding in the audience. And then as she works out the why of this, of the Cupid interfering, she gets the idea to, go, to hatch this plan to go out into the forest with Demetrius and see if she can get him back. So the, the um, confidant, the confidant uh, audience comes in at the end so we have the confidant and the conspiracy conspirator feeling it's kind of fun okay so now I want to look at the iambic pentameter because this like I said this is a really great piece for um for beginners to work on because it's very regular and every once in a while there'll be something fun um that is uh, a little odd and gives you an idea of the character and their frame of mind okay how happy some or other some can be. Okay, so let's, how happy some or other some can be. Can, uh, we can tap that out again. I always like to tap uh, the iambic pentameter um, on my heart because it is like a heartbeat and it kind of lets me feel that. So hopefully you can hear that through my little um, earphones, my mic. How happy some or other some can be. Nice, perfect, regular line. Through Athens, I am thought as fair as she. Another perfect line. In this next line, I want to just um, put a little pin in the name Demetrius. Um, most, it's really kind of interesting. He uh, Shakespeare elides many names in in these works, um, and so you'll see Demetrius in this sentence is going to be elided. Elide is, if you might remember from last episode, is to merge or join sounds. Um, Demetrius gets sort of shoved down from four syllables to three to fit into the sentence. And this happens all the time. Romeo is almost always pronounced Romeo. And it's almost always pronounced Juliet. 
every once in a while, the person will say all three syllables and it becomes like this really, um, it, it is used beautifully, like Ro Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? But then later in the same monologue, Juliet will say Romeo with all three syllables and, and the, the elongation of the name um, becomes like incredibly beautiful. So just take a just take note of that. We're going to shorten Demetrius. We're also going to shorten Hermia into Hermia many times in this monologue. So I just want to say that a, a lot of names are elided. We do this. We do this now, like names like um, uh, Alicia. We don't always say Alicia unless that's somebody's preference. Um, we I always say this. We don't always say family. We say family. It's uh, eliding is something that we do all the time. So you'll see that in this monologue. So let's beat out this third line. But what of that? Demetrius thinks not so, right? So we're just sort of shoving that, merging that together. He will not know what all but he do know. Another perfect line. And as he airs doting on Hermia's eyes. Ooh, you hear that? Doting. We don't say that. So we know right there, because the word doting is not uh, pronounced that way, we know that that is a trochee. And we remember from last episode, a trochee is a stressed followed by an unstressed syllable, whereas an am is an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. Uh, and as he airs doting on her, yes, eyes gets right back on track, but that one word gets a little stab. And think about that. We just paraphrased this. And we learned that doting is very specifically chosen. Doting has has a negative quality to it. It also, if you feel about it, like like the way that it feels in your mouth, doting, it has its own little stab to it, right? So it is pur purposefully chosen there, and it gives you insight into what Helena is going through. She is feeling a little stabby, so she gets that little stabby word right in the middle of, of that sentence. Think about what she's saying. And as he airs, doting on Hermia's eyes, right? Ugh, just a little, just a little jab there. So I admiring of his qualities. Back on track, perfect line. Things base and vile holding no quantity. Okay, so here's a place where you can make that choice. Things base and vile, right? We could make the beginning of that sentence a trochee. Things base and vile. Or we can leave it regular uh, iambic at the top there. Things base and vile, right? We have a bit of a choice there. I think if I were doing this monologue, I would choose base because base feels like it has a little more substance to it. It has more personality to it. So things base and vile. Ooh, and then here is another trochee right in the middle of, of the, the line. Holding, because we don't say holding, right? Things base and vile, holding no quantity. Again, we hear that it's not right. Holding no quantity. Okay, so we go back to that line. Things base and vile, holding no quantity. Right in the middle of that. It's like she's really feeling that. Again, because it gives her a little stab right in the middle of that line. Next line. Love can transpose to form and dignity. Again, we have a choice there. The beginning of that line. Should we say love? can transpose to form and dignity. I think if I were doing it, I would make that a trochee at the beginning of the sentence. Love can transpose to form and dignity. Love, we're about to go into uh, like an eight line segment of talking about 
Cupid and how dumb he is with his blindfold, right? He's he's bad at his job. So things based, things yucky and vile that have no they have no worth anymore. Love, dumb Cupid can transpose to form and dignity. So I think I would make a trochea of that one. But see, the next line begins with love as well. So just to to um, do it two different ways, I want to play with this for a second. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind. That's a perfect line. And we're going to hit looks instead of love. Or let's try this one again. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind. We just did that in the sentence before. We just did that in the sentence before. Love can transpose to form and dignity. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind. Because we already hit it in the, in the uh, prior sentence, I don't think I'm going to hit it so hard in this second sentence. Love can transpose to form and dignity. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind. The thing that we want to hit, the operative word in this one is looks now, okay? And therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Yeah, that's, that's another perfect line. You'll see in the middle of that one, winged has um, W-I-N-G apostrophe D. Uh, when you see something like that in Shakespeare, that means he does not want you to give it to, doesn't want you to make it two syllables. He doesn't want you to say, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Feel how that messes it up. He's giving you a clue. This one will not be elongated. We will not add a syllable here. It's uh, it's not willy nilly. It's it's a it was a clue to his actor. Don't don't mess with this one. Nor hath love's mind of any judgment taste. Perfect line back on track. Wings and no eyes figure unheedy haste. There's one where you can see the the trochee at the top. Wings and no eyes figure unheedy haste. Right. So if you think about how almost funny that it wings and no eyes he's literally placing the emphasis on the words that will get the joke uh, to come out. It's very fun. And therefore is love said to be a child. That one is another perfect line of iambic because in choice, he is so oft beguiled. Yeah. Perfect. As waggish boys in game themselves forswear. Perfect. So the boy love is perjured everywhere. So I probably would hit, the so instead of the the at the beginning of that sentence so the boy love is perjured everywhere so if we if we hit that we hit that so which also isn't a like a super important nouny verby um word that we have to make a big choice on it the word so is sort of leading me she's about to make a conclusion so i think i would definitely hit the so harder than the the but this is a really also a really great example of a sentence that uh, when you're looking for um, operative words and the words that are stressed the most, um, I wouldn't hit the so harder than I would hit something like perjured, right? So, so in, in its foot, which is so in the, I would make that a trochee. But that doesn't mean I'm going going to, as a performer, go something do something like this. Let me give you an example. So the boy love is perjured everywhere. It's going to be, I'm going to give it like a three on a scale of one to 10. Whereas I would give perjured maybe an eight on a scale of one to 10. 
so the boy love is perjured everywhere. So it is hit within its foot as a more stressed word, but it is not the most stressed word in the sentence just because it's a trophy. Hope that makes sense. We'll get, we'll find more of those as we move through this podcast. For ere Dimitris looked on Hermia's eye. See how we both, we made both of those elided, Dimitris and Hermia. Let's look at that if I didn't do that. For ere Dimitrias looked on Hermia's eye. Feel how that, that can't be, that like ruins the rhythm. So we're going to squish them both. For ere Dimitris looked on Hermia's eye. He hailed down oaths that he was only mine. Great. So it's another perfect line. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And when this hail some heat from Hermia felt, again, perfect, as long as we allied Hermia. So he dissolved and showers of oaths and melt. Ooh, here's a word, showers. So in the regular American dialect, we tend to really like elongate words like showers, powers, flower, um, our, this is a, a word that in Shakespeare's time generally is going to take one syllable. So we don't want to overdo it. Listen to how this sounds. So he dissolved and showers of oaths did melt. So the only word we can truly elide in that, it's not even really alighting because it's the way that it was said back then and the way it's said with an English accent it's, it's just, it's just a shorter word. It doesn't, we don't do a trip thong. That's what that, that sound combination is called. So he dissolved in showers of bows didn't melt. We're just going to squish that and light it, especially for the American accent. We, we tend to make that word really long. I will go tell him of fair Hermia's flight. Perfect line again. Then to the wood will he tomorrow night. Perfect. Pursue her end for this intelligence. Perfect, but we're going to come back to that line in a second. If I have thanks, it is a dear expense. Perfect. But here in mean I too enrich my pain. Yeah, that's perfect. To have his sight thither and back again. Okay, thither. Uh, I would say thither. To have his sight thither and back again. So we have a trochee in the middle of that line. Thither. I'm going to have it go to her and then boomerang back to me, right? Okay, so I want to go back to this line that I, I said, let's, you know, let's put a pin in this. Uh, then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. You'll notice um, we talked last, uh, last episode um, in the Hermione monologue that she had all of these wrapping lines. Uh, we called that enjambment um, when a line sort of wraps around from one line to another one. It, it needs to still make sense. And it doesn't make sense unless you keep moving and, and wrapping around. And, and she had all those medial stops, um, the periods, colons, uh, question marks in the middle of her line. Now I want you to take a look at this in comparison to that Hermione monologue, Sir Spare Your Threats, if you um, did not listen to last time, totally fine. You'll notice that there are very, very, very few midline stops maybe a couple of commas but there is an end stop feeling to the each to each one of these lines how happy some or other some can be end stop through Athens I have thought as fair as she end stop but what of that here's one Demetrius thinks not so end stop he will not know what all but he do know end stop 
And as he airs, doting on Hermia's eyes, right? <laughs> okay, so we have a little comma there, totally fine, but we're not stopping. So I, admiring of his qualities, oh my gosh, right? Things base and vile holding no quantity, love can transpose to form and dignity. I would just want you to look down, like look at the monologue and look down at the end of each line. We have be, she, so, no, eyes, qualities, quantity, dignity, mind, blind, they, every single one, like keep going down, blind, taste, haste, child, beguiled, forswear, wear, ein, mine, felt, melt, flight, night, oh, night does not have an end stop. It has a wraparound line. It's called enjambment. Jam from the French meaning leg. It's like the, the leg is leaping over to the next line. Then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. It's as if her mind is running over with this amazing idea. And he's used the punctuation at the end of this line, or the lack thereof, to give us the feeling of running over the, running over the end of the pentameter, the meter, with this amazing idea that's like falling out of her brain. So think about that. Then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. And then the breaths, they're at that lovely medial stop. And for this intelligence, if I have thanks, there's another one. And for this intelligence, if I have thanks, it is a dear expense. Okay, so I know if I give him this information, it will be very painful, but I'm, it, he's, gonna, he's gonna thank me. Okay, so that when we look, it's a great example of like end stop, end stop, end stop. She's thinking very, very clearly in a very measured way. And then, oh, I got to get this idea and my cup runneth over. So really fun. So you notice just in looking at the iambic pentameter and paraphrasing and finding some of those enjambments, you, what do we learn about Helena? We learn that she's she really does try to stay on meter. She tries to keep it together. She's also, I don't know if you noticed, but she's rhyming. She rhymes every single couplet very strictly and perfectly. Now rhyme in Shakespeare's sort of <laughs> his methodology is magic and unrequited love and feeling. So if you ever, if you ever hear things rhyming when they didn't necessarily rhyme before, there's like magic, there's, there's love, there are spells being cast. And oh my gosh, Midsummer Night's Dream, if you know this play, it's like, spell, like once they get to the forest, oh my gosh, different rhyme schemes are happening all the time. And you really feel that unrequited love feeling uh, when a rhyme comes about. Another thing that rhyme could do, and you may notice this in, in pieces to come in this podcast, sometimes there will just be a rhyming couplet at the end of a scene. And that signaled to the audience, signaled to probably also the backstage actors that are waiting to come on. It's a bit of magic, like a scene wipe. It reminds me of the law and order, dun, dun. Like there, ah, we're gonna switch scenes. It is a, it, that is also magic, if you think about it. We are going to move from one place to another to talk to different characters, magic, right? So her, her whole monologue is, is rhymed in magic because this unrequited love, the, the spell that she is under, that is magic, the spell that she is under is, is literally compelling her to rhyme. And you'll see this 
many times throughout Shakespeare. There's some really great examples um, in Twelfth Night where people are speaking with absolutely no rhyme and, and totally in prose. And then suddenly the love walks out the door and they're suddenly speaking, um, compelled to speak in rhyme. So it's just something to take note of. And uh, there is there's meaning to it. Whereas blank verse, instead of rhymed verse, blank verse is the sound of um, logic and reality, um, truth, reason. Rhyme is like, <laughs> all that goes out the window. <laughs> all of that goes out the window. Something, Something's in the air. Something's in the air, magic, magic, magic. So it's quite fun. So I think that a lot of this, all this verse work actually tells you who Helena is. She chooses words like goading. She's, she's mad. She's mad, but it's kind of funny. Um, she's a young girl. She's hatching this really ill-advised plan to trick the guy that she likes into hopefully liking her back uh, because of the, the magic in the air and the, the unrequited feelings that she has for him. Okay, so now I'm going to do the whole monologue with all of those treasures unpacked so you can hear how they help to create Helena's characters, doing a little example for you. And there's no perfect way to do these things, if, especially like, I'm just reaching out here to actors. This is not like the way to do this. This is my excavation with my creative filter, the, the filter that is me. Um, that's why a million people can play Helena. A lot of different kinds of people can play Helena. But these are the, uh, the treasures that I unlocked that are going to help me perform Helena. How happy some or other some can be. Through Athens, I am thought as fair as she. But what of that? Demetrius thinks not so. He will not know what all but he do know. And as he airs, doting on Hermia's eyes, so I, admiring of his qualities, things base and vile holding no quantity, love can transpose to form and dignity. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind, nor hath love's mind of any judgment taste, wings and no eyes figure unheedy haste. And therefore is love said to be a child, because in choice he is so oft beguiled. As waggish boys in game themselves forswear, so the boy love is perjured everywhere. For ere Demetrius looked on Hermia's eye, he hailed thou knows that he was only mine. And when this hail some heat from Hermia felt, so he dissolved, and showers of oaths did melt. I will go tell him of fair Hermia's flight, then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. And for this intelligence, if I have thanks, it is a dear expense. But herein mean I to enrich my pain, to have his sight thither and back again. Okay, so we feel how uh, just the unpacking of those, uh, of those treasures that we, we, we sort of excavated from the text starts to make you understand her. So that's what actors try to do when they work on a text is unpack and figure out how how these things actually can help them to create a performance, um, create their character. I hope that you have enjoyed this, this uh, edition and uh, that you're learning more about meter and rhythm and 
all of the fun treasures that are in Shakespeare's plays. Love doing this. Thank you so much for listening. That is it for this episode of The Shakedown. As you can see, there is so much to shake down in every one small, tiny passage in a Shakespeare play. This is Bryn Boyce. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for our next episode where I'll be breaking down a bit of Julius Caesar.